Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. In this edition, attorney Nick Mooney, who has devoted the past 19 years of his law practice to consumer financial services litigation, discusses the current consumer litigation landscape in West Virginia. Thanks, everybody, for joining. I um, was talking a few months ago with some folks at the National Creditors Bar Association and brought this topic up and realized that there was a lot more interest in it than I realized and or I previously thought. And then I had a chance to talk with some folks at the ACA International and got the same feedback. Uh, so I've been talking with them. I've done podcasts for both of them and then thought, well, it makes sense. A lot of people are interested in this. Let's make sure we get this information out there and hopefully it provides some value and some helpful info to everybody. So I wanted to give a roadmap to sort of tell everybody where we're going to go. I think it's important to start with the background, a little history on the WBCCPA, and don't worry, it was passed in 1974. I'm not going to go through 45 years of history, but a little bit of the history, some of the common claims we saw pre-amendments, some of the defenses, some that weren't successful, at least one that was, penalties and damages that you needed to worry about, then also talking about the 2015 amendments, which is a lot, a lot of the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about, the amendments to the substantive provisions of the code, the amendments to the statute of limitations really comes a little after 2015. Um, well, some in 2015 and then some in after 2015. And then the penalty provisions also wanted to take a note on the 2017 amendments, because I think they're important if you're facing a lawsuit in West Virginia. There's now a pre-suit notice requirement and the statute of limitations on time bar debt was changed. And then after that, I want to talk about uh, the types of claims we are seeing now, and that's what we're calling litigation landscape post-amendment. And then in the last minute or so, just a couple of general helpful hints about what you should know if you're facing a lawsuit in West Virginia. So getting started first on the background of the WVCCPA, uh, the West Virginia Consumer Credit and Protection Act, it is the primary statute that we see every day. We see consumers asserting claims against collectors, creditors, debt buyers, uh, indirect auto financiers, some law firms. It's the one that the consumers rely on the most heavily, I think. It was passed in 1974. It applies, if you're talking about the collection procedures, it applies to both first party and third party collection. It's important to note the, the, the point here, it doesn't supplant common law. There's Case decisions directly on point in West Virginia that while the WVCCPA provides relief for consumers, and by the way, it provides a lot of relief for consumers, uh, the consumers are still free to sue under other statutes and they're still free to sue under common law. The the WVCCPA has a lot of provisions on a lot of things. I've listed some of them here in this slide. It addresses consumer loans, assignments, assignments of loans, assignee liability, finance charges, uh, monthly statements, default charges, limitations on default charges. It has an entire article on unfair and deceptive acts and practices, has an entire article on the attorney general, uh, attorney general's power and the consumer protection division of the attorney general. It seeks to have debt collection provisions similar to the FDCPA, but as we'll talk about in a moment, the penalties are a lot more severe and have been traditionally. One of my colleagues and I sat down you know, it's been several years ago now, and we tried to count up how many substantive provisions are, to the, are there to this statute, and we got about 250. Our math could be off. It could be 254. It could be 247, but there are a lot. So pre-2015, what were the common WVCCPA claims that we were seeing? And what we saw, the, one of the biggest, was 
the claims for contacts after attorney notification. And that's in 2128E of the code. The entire code is in Chapter 46. And what this provision prohibits is any communication when it appears that a consumer is represented by counsel and the attorney's name or address could easily be ascertained. Well, that seems to be pretty easy. But what we saw, and if you've dealt with any lawsuits in West Virginia, you probably saw this as well, is the method that that consumers were providing attorney notification led to a little gamesmanship. It led to some things that, you know, weren't, I think, weren't actually purposed to uh, give attorney notification so much as they were to get this statute to kick in so that they could sue. What we saw were uh, consumers making credit card payments where they would have the remit stub and the check and they would put them in the envelope and they would not fold them so that they were the perfect thickness to run through an automated automated processor. But the consumer would write on the remit stub. I have an attorney. His name is Nick Mooney. His phone number is one, two, three. Don't contact me again. No one would ever see that. No human eyes would see that. But they'd quit making payments and then they get a bunch of collection calls and they would then file a lawsuit. We also many, many, many times saw consumers quickly given attorney information over the phone and then hanging up. I've listened to a lot of recordings where the caller, the collector or the, or the server, customer service representative was left saying, I'm sorry, hello, what? I didn't get that. So we saw that a lot. We also saw consumers when they were dealing with large creditors that have multiple branches. If there was a branch here in West Virginia, there was a branch in some small town here in West Virginia, they would go into that branch or fax something to that branch and say that that's the attorney notification. We, you know, it led to a lot of what we see as kind of less than, less than um, on the up and up tactics. Nonetheless, it worked for a lot of years. The other common claim we saw pre 2015 uh, was harassing phone calls. There's a lot of words on this slide if you're looking at the slide, but essentially what it amounts to is harassing phone calls. It's causing someone's phone to ring or engaging them in calls repeatedly or continuously or at unusual times or at times known to be inconvenient, et cetera, et cetera. The important part here is there is an intent requirement with the intent to annoy and abuse. What we saw in 2015 was uh, these types of actions. First off, when consumers would say, don't call my work number or don't call this phone number, that was easy, easy to implement. But what happened several years ago, and I call it the $300 mattress case, there was a lawsuit in one of the southern counties in West Virginia where the debtor was being sued. I'm sorry, the debtor brought suits. The debtor was getting collection calls over a $300 mattress debt. During one of the calls, she said, it's not my debt. I'm not going to pay it. She then sues the collector. It goes to the court. The court makes a decision on it and says, look, she told you she wasn't going to pay. So if she told you she wasn't going to pay, no amount of calls would be successful. And if no amount of calls would be successful in collecting the debt, then the calls weren't to collect the debt. The calls were to harass her. And even though this provision in the code has an intent requirement, I'm going to infer the intent to harass and enter a judgment against you. And then the, um, the defendant there got hit with liability. What that led to was what I called threading the needle on this claim. And what we saw after that were a lot of lawsuits where the consumer appeared to be trying to give definite enough, definite enough language that the prohibition would kick in and the consumer would sue, but not strong enough language that the uh, collector or the creditor would actually stop calling. So we saw suits, had cases where the consumer would say, it's not my debt. Okay, that's pretty easy. That's the $300 mattress debt. We saw cases where the consumer said, I can't pay right now. 
So what does that mean? Does that mean never call again? Does it mean wait 30 days to call? Does it wait 60 days to call? What is it? We saw that. And what I thought was the most egregious um, example is I had a case where the consumers would repeat, please don't call me again. And they repeated it with this cadence that it was almost memorized. They would say, please don't call me again. They get on the phone. They would talk with our customer service rep and say, please don't call me again. And in the most what I thought crazy example is the creditor at one point was calling for the husband. It was a husband wife debtor calling for the husband. The wife answered and the wife said, oh, he's not here right now. Do you have his cell phone number? No, let me give it to you. And she gave it to the, the caller and then said, please don't call me again and hang up. So those are the things that we saw. Um, on the debt collection side, pre-2015, on the mortgage side, if you're servicing mortgage loans, be aware that what we saw were a lot of unconscionability claims. And we have a provision in the code on unconscionability. We've got a, a lot of case law that has grown up on unconscionability. It requires a lot of showing uh, by the plaintiff. We saw a lot of claims on that. Even if you're servicing mortgage claims, we still saw um, collection claims, collection violation claims. And the big one we saw was misrepresenting the character or extent or amount of a debt, which we felt like puts us as the defendant to the burden of actually proving the current amount of the debt by going back through from the beginning of the debt, all the way through every charge, every payment, every fee, every late fee, every everything. We saw that a lot. The other thing that we saw a lot was balloon payment disclosures. That was one of the places in the code where the code actually spelled out the language to use. And we saw cases where there was a balloon disclosure, but it didn't have a language in the code. And we had to deal with that. Another thing that consumers sued on pre-2015 uh, in the mortgage arena was the claim that the loan balance was greater than the fair market value of the uh, property. And if that's the case, there's a separate statute, the West Virginia Regis Residential Mortgage Lender Broker and Servicer Act that the plaintiffs will bring suit under in connection with also bringing suit under the WBCCPA. So we saw those claims a lot in the uh, run up to the 2015 amendments. Some of the defenses, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this so we can get to the amendments. We were hampered going into 2015 on the types of defenses that we could argue. The courts were really restrictive on the defenses. We wanted to argue that the debt was legitimate. Look, we're only contacting you because it's a legitimate debt and you're not paying it. And but for you not paying it, you'd never hear from us. The court struck that down and said, nowhere is that uh, an element of the statute. Nowhere is that contemplated by the statute. We argued for a while that uh, attempted calls were not communications. That defense a lot of defense lawyers argued that here in West Virginia, that defense was you know, soundly rejected um, when you're talking about calls after attorney notification. We argued no intent to harass. Remember, the harassment statute has an intent requirement. And for the longest time, we argued no intent to harass. There was actually a case that came out later uh, involving a collector here in West Virginia where the court said, no, you have to prove evidence of intent to harass. So we got a little relief there. One of the areas where we were able to, to mount a really good defense was uh, collecting under the Higher Education Act because it actually has a scheme for when a collector is to make calls during the due diligence period, during certain periods of delinquency. We were able to argue that that statute preempts some of the provisions of the WBCCPA, and the court said absolutely 100%. So one of the reasons that the WBCCPA was such a um, good statute for consumers and why they want to focus on it in their lawsuits is what this next slide shows, and that's penalties and damages. You know, 
everyone in in the U.S. is probably familiar with the FDCPA and familiar with the fact that you get a thousand dollar penalty or some sort of penalty per lawsuit. You get one penalty per lawsuit. The thing with the WVCCPA is it's completely different from the FDCPA. Pre 2015, the amount of the the violation, the amount of the penalty was $100 to $1,000, but it's per violation, not per lawsuit. Moreover, the court has the authority to adjust that 100 to 1,000 for inflation, for rises in the consumer price index from 1974, the year when the statute went into effect. So right around the 2015 timeframe when the amendments go in place, the 100 to 1,000 ends up being about 490 to 4,900 per violation. So every call, every attempt to call, every potential violation under the code would yield a $490 to a $4,900 statutory penalty, plus actual damages, plus attorney's fees. And in some instances, you could get debt forgiveness. So we have these vague, loose, substantive provisions. We have high penalties. We have a lot of lawsuits, hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits being filed. So that gives way to the 2015 amendments. And we really have to look to some of the folks in the legislature here in West Virginia who are actually lawyers representing banks and other financial institutions. They knew what was going on because for a number of reasons. One, they were defending financial institutions in those type of lawsuits. They were talking with other um, defense counsel in West Virginia, and they were aware of the situation. So they take action in 2015 to tighten up some of the provisions with regard to the 2128, which is calls after attorney notification. Now you can't just run down to the local branch, open the door and, and yell really fast. You have a lawyer and his name's Nick Mooney and here's the phone number. That doesn't work anymore. The notice has to be in writing. It has to be sent to the creditor or collector's registered agent or principal place of business. In 2015, the amendments say that the, the creditor or collector gets 72 hours to process it. It's now been changed to three business days. Uh, there is a carve out for required disclosures or correspondence. It's clear in the statute that documents that you're required to send aren't violations. And one of the interesting things, I think one of the really helpful things with this amendment is it now talks in terms of with regard to the subject debt. Is the consumer represented with regard to the subject debt? And you'll appreciate that change if you ever have multiple accounts for the same consumer. It came very cumbersome. Well, they gave attorney notification on account one, but we were calling them on account two. And that's something that always ended up in litigation. With regard to the harassing phone calls uh, section, the 2125D, the 2015 amendments uh, tighten it up as well. First off, they say, unless the creditor or collector has reason to know otherwise, then 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. is deemed to be not inconvenient. So sort of tracking the federal law. But what it does have, and we've had since 2015, now becoming big with the CFPB's notice of proposed rulemaking in the past few months, we have call caps. We've had call caps in the state statute since 2015. The creditor or collector is allowed 30 attempted calls per week or 10 conversations per week before it slides into the harassing phone calls arena. The one thing that this section does not do is it does not spell out, is that 30 attempts per week or 10 conversations per week per debt, or is it total? And that's an issue that's still left open. The other thing that's important, and it's led to a lot of help in the mortgage litigation arena, is this change in the statute of limitations. Prior to 2015, the statute of limitations, which is actually found in Section 5101, Subpart 1, had two statutes of limitations. It allowed a consumer to bring suit 
based on the type of debt that was at issue. If it's a pre-computed, think amortized debt, a schedule of payments in a scheduled amount, then the consumer got to bring the suit all the way up to one year after the date of the last scheduled payment. Lots and lots of people read that quickly and said, there's a one-year statute of limitations. That's not true. There was never a one-year statute of limitations. There's a one-year after the date of the last scheduled payment statute of limitations. So what's that mean? If you have a 30-year mortgage, you have a 31-year statute of limitations. A five-year car loan, you got a six-year statute of limitations. And we had that conversation lots and lots of times because it's incomprehensible. People find it unbelievable. Um, but it existed. If it was a non-pre-computed debt, like a revolving debt, like a credit card, something of that nature, then it was just straight four years from the date of the violation. With the 2015 amendments, now everything's a four-year. It's a four-year statute of limitations regardless of the type of the debt. So we've got clarification there. And uh, we could talk about later about how that helps on the mortgage litigation side. The other area, sort of the third and last area, the 2015 amendments help us is in resetting the penalty. It's no longer 100 to to $1,000. It's a straight $1,000. Sounds bad, but you know that is a little bad. But the better part is this. We no longer adjust inflation from 1974. We now adjust it from 2015. It's actually September of 2015. So right now, roughly the penalty is $1,090 per violation. Bad that it's per violation, but it's a lot better than $4,900. A couple things to note. Looks like it's helpful. It's never been helpful yet to us is the statute now has a maximum statutory penalty of $175,000 or the amount of the indebtedness, whichever is greater. That's $175,000 per class member. We've fortunately never been in a situation where that is a cap that's kicked in. A uh, thing to note, no, there is no cap in the state act based on a defendant's net worth. So jumping from 2015 amendments, and I know the title of this is, relates to the 2015 amendments, but I want to talk for just a second about the 2017 and 2019. Uh, 2017, we added a right to cure in a statute, effective July 4, 2017. A consumer now has to provide a notice of alleged violation and give the creditor or collector the opportunity to make a cure offer before the consumer can file suit. Uh, There's a note here that there was already a right to cure uh, pre-suit notice requirement in Article 6. There was, but now as of July 4, 2017, we have one that applies to the entire WBCCPA. It requires, here are the things, a written course has to be served by certified mail. No more of this, just yelling it in the door. Uh, It has to go to the registered agent, has to advise the defendant of the alleged violation and the factual basis for the violation. The creditor or collector gets 45 days to make a cure offer. However, if a lawsuit is already pending, the creditor collector gets 20 days. And then the consumer gets 20 days to decide if he or she wants to accept it or reject it. Uh, it Sounds great on paper. sounds great in theory. In practice, it's not really been effective yet. Uh, the, The letters we're seeing are very vague. And because the penalties are per violation, a lot of the consumer attorneys won't talk settlement unless they have the uh, defendant's records so they know exactly how many potential violations they're looking at because, frankly, they don't trust their own clients to keep good records. So I think it puts the burden on us to give pre-suit discovery, and a lot of my clients say I'm not interested in giving pre-suit discovery. Um, I had a court judge say to me a couple years ago, you know, I moved to dismiss based on the, the consumer's failure to give this pre-suit notice. And then we scheduled the hearing. The hearing was like 60 days later. And, and the court said, OK, Mr. Mooney, well, what's the matter? We're here now. And my point to that is, no, it doesn't work like that. And here's why. The 
the pre-suit notice requirement is explicit that if the consumer doesn't accept the offer and the consumer pushes this thing to trial and gets an amount in actual damages and penalties that's less than the amount of the offer, then the defendant isn't liable for the consumer's attorney's fees. So I think you always want to push that, always want to push for that. If you get sued and you think it's just going to be a bother to make them give a pre-suit notice requirement, you know, I tell you, I think you want to do that. Um, The other thing in 2017, and this is a lot of language on a slide, but we can go through it pretty easily. In 2017, we amended the time bar debt disclosure. We're seeing a lot of lawsuits on that post amendments. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you're not aware of this, take a moment to look at this statute. Um, 2128F of the statute now has, well, has had since 2014 a time bar debt disclosure, and it tells you the language to use. Pre, it was first enacted in June 6, 2014. That version is in effect until July 3, 2017. It only requires a disclosure in the initial written communication. There is no disclosure for verbal communications, just written communications. The question is, what is the initial written communication? Is it the first written communication you ever sent, the hello letter? Or is it the first communication after the debt goes out of statute? We're litigating that. I don't have an answer on that yet. I know which one we think it is, but we have class actions pending on that right now. The statute was amended effective July, uh, July 4th, 2017. This disclosure is now required in every written communication. Seems easy. We still have a lot of disagreement, and the disagreement is when is a debt out of statute such that this disclosure is required. You have a lot of sources for statute limitations in West Virginia. Either you have statutes that address it, you have case decisions on the credit card statute limitations. West Virginia has adopted the UCC, so for sales, you have four-year statute limitations in, I think, it's Section 2725. So you really got to figure out what statute limitations apply. Seems easy. It's not. And to add a little bit of confusion, we also have a borrowing statute in West Virginia that says if a cause of action accrues out of state, it's the lesser of West Virginia or the other states statute limitation that applies. Let's jump uh, real quickly. If you do any litigation funding, be aware that in 2019, we enacted a very, very restrictive new article. Uh, industry publications are saying it's effectively killing the, the uh, litigation funding industry in West Virginia. So the litigation landscape of um, uh, the WVCCPA post-amendment, we're still seeing a lot of individual claims. We're still seeing some calls after attorney notification claims, but this was really slowed down a lot. The other thing that I feel like has slowed down a lot is a lot of mortgage claims. Certainly, lawsuits being filed in 2019 based on origination conduct in 2000 is not happening anymore. The statute of limitations changes effectively stopped that. Uh, so we're not seeing that a lot. What we are seeing, the consumers filing more class actions. There's no question about that. I think maybe I have one or two class actions pre-2015, and I had a huge docket of individual cases. Now we have, I don't know, 12, 15 class actions going on at one time. Uh, not surprisingly, the consumers are focusing on form letters and notices. Anything that would apply across a class seems to be fodder for a class action. What is really big right now is the statute of limitations and the time bar debt disclosure that we talked about a couple minutes ago. Are you using the right language? Is it in the initial written communication in that initial written communication period? Is it in every communication thereafter? So if you're not focusing on the statute of limitations for the accounts you're servicing or the debt you're collecting, stop and take a hard look at this. Not legal advice, but definitely legal information. We're seeing a lot of lawsuits on that, and you want to get ahead of this, want to make sure you're doing it right.
uh, fees disclosed in letters, documents, collector's fees, attorney's fees. That goes back to the anything that's in your form letters that might apply across a spectrum, across a, cl- across a class of consumers, is fodder for a class action. Take a look at that. The other biggie, in addition to the statute of limitations and making sure you have the right disclosure, the other biggie that I want to talk with everybody about is this, the West Virginia Collection Agency Act. We're seeing a lot more class actions filed about this statute. You may or may not know it exists. Uh, it's in uh, Chapter 47. It's Chapter 47, Article 16. If you meet the definition of a collection agency and look at it, because you may say, well, I'm a collection agency. I meet that definition. Well, maybe you don't. But if you meet the definition of the collection agency, you have to have a license, you have to post a bond, you have to have an office in West Virginia, and you have to keep records according to this certain standard. So let's go through those in a little bit more detail, and I'll tell you what we see consumers suing on. First, you have to have a license. Statute's pretty explicit that your business registration certificate from the state tax department is your collection agency license. Great. That seems easy to know. You have to have a bond. You have to post a bond. Okay. What is not in the Collection Agency Act? is the tax department's position is that your bond must be approved by the attorney general. If your bond's not approved by the attorney general, they'll say your bond's not effective. And I can tell you right now, after deposing people at the state tax department, their position is your bond runs with your license. So if your bond is not effective, your license is not effective. Even if you've done everything you need to do to have a license, if your bond's not effective, their position is your license is not effective. So be aware of that, not in the statute requirement. Uh, The office requirement, the the thing about the office requirement, it does say that you have to have an office in West Virginia. Our experience is it's not being enforced. Neither the state tax department nor the attorney general have enforced that to our knowledge. And our question, you see on the slide, I say we question whether it's permissible uh, and whether it's an interstate commerce clause violation. And we can get to that in a second. I'll drill down on that a little bit to tell you because there has been one class action on that. The fourth um, the fourth requirement is record keeping. We don't see that being a a, a, um, a basis for consumer suits, primarily because if you look at the record keeping requirements in the Collection Agency Act, they talk in terms of the collector's clients, which would be the creditors. And I just don't think there's a consumer protection mechanism. The other thing to be aware of is, and it's 100% not in the Collection Agency Act, is that the state tax department position is you must obtain a certificate of authority from the secretary of state. And if you don't have that, then again, your license is not good. So be aware that you won't find it. You can read the collection agency act from stem to stern. You won't find that requirement, but I'll tell you that's the state tax department's position on it, that you need to have a certificate of authority. So how are consumers using the collection agency act? What we are seeing is that the consumers say, here's the deal. You have to comply with the Collection Agency Act before you can service debts, collect debts, do anything like that in West Virginia. And every collection call you make, every letter you send, every notice you send, every document you send carries with it the implied representation that you're permitted to do that in West Virginia. And you're only permitted to do that in West Virginia if you comply with the Collection Agency Act. So if you haven't, what the position, the position they're taking is that every attempt, every communication into the state carries with it implied misrepresentation and violates the WVCCPA. And you can see how this would apply across a class of consumers. So we're seeing a lot of class actions being filed on this. The office requirement, it's the third of the um, requirements. And it's the one I want to drill down a little bit. Uh, you know, I've had this conversation on a num- with a number of people. Are we required to have an office there? And I'd say, well, the 
it is in the statute. However, I think I think there's a problem with it being in the statute. And I think our thinking that there's a problem with it being in the statute is underscored by the fact that the state doesn't appear to be enforcing it. We have had one plaintiff file one class action where our client had complied with every other provision of the Collection Agency Act and the WVCCPA, except it did not have an office in the state. Uh, they were suing solely on that basis. Our response back was, you know, under the constitutional analysis, and let me push the pause button, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but fortunately I work with people who have more knowledge about this. But in that analysis, there is a required concept that there be a legitimate state interest or a legitimate government interest for an in-state office requirement. Our argument was there is no such interest if the state doesn't even enforce it. It's hard to maintain that there's a legitimate state interest when the state doesn't even enforce it. And But wait, there's more. If you look at the West Virginia State Tax Department's website, it addresses out-of-state collectors and out-of-state um, servicers, and it doesn't say they're prohibited. It says they're limited to just sending letters and just making phone calls. So that was our argument. We pushed back hard on that, ended up with an individual settlement, and that case went away. That was probably a couple years ago. We haven't seen any suits on that office requirement since then. The other thing that's becoming big in West Virginia is the um, lawsuits over home equity conversion mortgages, HECMs or reverse mortgages. We've seen these for just the last couple of years. So th there wasn't any 2015 amendment that addressed those. Um, but nonetheless, we're starting to see those become big. So I wanted to mention those. So far, we've been successful in arguing that the plaintiff is not a consumer and as such doesn't have standing under the CCPA, the WVCCPA. The West Virginia Consumer Credit Protection Act requires the plaintiff to be a consumer, which requires the plaintiff to have personal obligation on a debt, and you don't under a reverse mortgage. We've been pretty successful on that. That's something that may be bigger if you service those types of mortgage, do collections in that area, be aware of uh, those claims and get in touch with me and I can sort of give you sites to some of the cases where that came up and was successful. So that that was sort of a, a rundown of what we're seeing now and have been seeing for the last four years, more class actions, more on statute limitations, more on form letters, more on the Collection Agency Act, and more on reverse mortgages. But I know we're hitting right at the uh, the cutoff mark. I'll be really quick. I have this conversation with a lot of people that I talk about. If you're facing a lawsuit in West Virginia, and here, this is Nick Mooney just speaking from the hip. If you're facing a lawsuit in West Virginia, the first thing to do is know the judge you're in front of. If you don't know it, we have a two-tiered court system. We have um, our general jurisdiction trial courts are at the county level. We have 55 counties in West Virginia. Each county has a judge. Some counties have more than one judge. If the county's more rural, they share a judge. We have no intermediate appellate court. We have one um, Supreme Court of Appeals sits here in West Virginia, has five justices. If you appeal from the trial court where your case is pending, it goes to the Supreme Court of Appeals. That has created a system where our county judges have a lot of discretion in how they run their docket, and it varies. It varies a lot. Some of them are on rocket docket where you pick dates for a scheduling order and they do not get changed. Some the court leaves it to the, I'm sorry, and some the court leaves it to the parties. To push. I have one case where I argued a motion to dismiss on behalf of our client in May of 2016. I'm still waiting for an answer, still waiting for a ruling. I have one case that's been dormant since April of 2014. The courts aren't pushing it. Some require mediation, some don't. Some will mediate the case. The judge will mediate the case himself or herself. Some won't. Some judges will hold any motions that you file until the very end of the case to encourage settlement. So one thing to remember, um, 
is what what judge are you in front of and how does that judge like to conduct herself or himself? That is going to govern a lot, I think, how you defend the lawsuits. Number two is insist on the pre-suit notice requirement. We talked about it a little while ago. I think you, you insist on it even if you know, even if it seems to be a small case and you only have a couple violations. If it's a small case and you only have a couple violations, then I think you really, really want to insist on it. Because if this person, the, the consumer, wants to push this all the way to trial after you make a reasonable settlement offer, reasonable um, offer to cure, you may be in a position where you can call off their attorney's fees. So I think you want to do that. And then lastly, I think that one of the things to bear in mind is unlike other states and unlike under the federal law, we have penalties per violation, not penalties per lawsuit. I think it makes it harder sometimes to settle cases because the consumer's attorneys do not want to um, – talk settlement until they're sure they have their hands around all of the potential violations and they trust our records. They trust the defendant's records more than they trust their own clients.